We're taking a brief, a brief break from Noah in Genesis 6 through 9, and I just felt compelled. I told you that I was getting these inklings, <laughs> um, leading of the Spirit, I think, because there's a lot of questions that are circling around um, in, in the minds of many people, and one of the big ones uh, for Christians is, is the modern-day nation of Israel, the people of God, because they are back in the land, it's true, but they're there in, in unbelief, and so that's caused a lot of people to ask a lot of questions, and um, this is by no means an exhaustive presentation here, because you don't know how much is left on the cutting floor back in my office. I mean, I could go for a long time on this, but I do want to give some clarity uh, the best that I can with some historical facts, uh, some present-day facts, and those are hard to find these days with AI and everything else. So there's a lot in the news about Israel and the Palestinians. And with modern communications, AI, social media, and the deceitfulness of men's hearts, there's a lot of false things that are being said. And it's difficult to sort through all the information that's out there. And then you Combine that with there are some uh, even evangelicals who are really solid in their theology proper. That's a study of God and his nature. And soteriology, which is the study of salvation, they're, they're very solid in this area. But in the area of ecclesiology, uh, they leave something to be desired. And that is being very generous and very kind. Because they would say that the church is Israel, and there is no Israel anymore. I don't know what they think is happening over there, or what those people are that call themselves Israelis, but they basically do, do not allow for a future for the nation of Israel, the ethnic uh, entity of Israel. Uh, we here at this church do teach that there is a future for Israel, and um, just to give you an answer to the question before we even get into it, we basically teach here very f- profoundly that that group over there that is in Israel, calling themselves Israelis, is the chosen people of God back in the land, but in unbelief. Now I'll try and explain all that. Now I believe there are some key questions that need to be addressed to assist us as we pray fervently for the peace of Israel even as the war rages and spills out throughout the world, literally. The pro-Hamas rallies everywhere, and the rhetoric that comes from the rallies has caused even some Christians to jump on the news, cause celeb. Um, I've listened to some interviews of some of the protesters at the pro-Hamas rallies, and, you know, speaking as one who was a radical in the late 60s, I was at the Democratic National Convention in 1968, and I marched on the side of SDS, uh, Students for Democratic Society. It had nothing to do with politics. It had nothing to do with anything that was real. It was party time. That's all it was. There were some true diehard fans, the, the, the ones that got the rallies organized and everything, but the rest of us, we were there for the party. And it was no different with Black Lives Matters. And it was no different with the marches that we saw perpetrated here because of the death of someone over in Minneapolis. 
There are crowds and crowds and crowds of people, and this is a great big party for most of the folks, sadly. And they're on the wrong side. They are definitely on the wrong side. So today, I'd like to address three topics to help provide you with some simple facts that will maybe help you sort through some of this stuff and then even answer questions that may come up to you from friends or workmates or even uh, family members. Who are the Palestinians? We want to talk about that a little bit. And then uh, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, uh, a modern-day miracle. And then I'll close off with, is Israel being back in the promised land, um, are they really the people of God because they're there in unbelief? And we'll try and address all those things. So let's just pray and ask God's help. Father, we do need you to enter into uh, this service and this sermon especially. Uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you for history. We thank you that we live in such a day where um, doing research is actually so easy. It really, truly is. Uh, Everything's just at the tip of our fingers. But at the same time, that same ease with research is filled with air. And uh, if you're not careful, you can be led astray so easily today, whether it be spiritually or even historically, Lord. Many truths are being erased that have been held historically for thousands of years, actually. And Father, so help us to be good stewards of the truth and the wisdom and um, the history that we have, um, as well as the biblical truths that we have been given. Father, uh, bless this time. I pray, open our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off with who are the Palestinians? Because there's a concerted effort of moral equivalence taking place um, in the world at large pertaining to what has come to be called the Palestinians or the Hamas uh, protest and the pro-Palestinian protest. Moral equivalence means the claim that two radically different ethical actors, two radically different uh, ethical actors, Israel, Palestinians, okay, are really doing the same thing and that they should be judged and treated the same way. Moral equivalence. Palestinian babies are as precious as Israeli babies. Okay? Or if you want something a little bit different, we just heard recently, black lives matter. Yeah, I know, right? All lives matter. All babies are precious. Of course, babies of whatever their family or origin are precious, and no Israeli or Israel supporter has ever claimed otherwise. And there have been numerous examples attempting to point out how such moral equivalence is not helpful. One such attempt at explaining moral equivalence uh, uses, the old, uh, uses World War II as, as a backdrop. It was certainly true that Japanese and German children were as precious as American children. It, it, it was true. German babies are as precious as American babies, or we could have said Japanese babies are as precious as American babies. But to what purpose is that, really? Does that mean that Americans should not have bombed Germany and Japan? You see, America and her allies bombed Germany and Japan, and the reason American, America and those countries bombed those two countries was because they started World War II and because they committed horrific evils in their war effort to take over the world. Now, I've been to Japan and I've visited 
the Peace Garden in Hiroshima. And I've got to tell you that in Japan itself, what I learned was that the entire nation, children, parents, mothers, fathers, everyone was led by their emperor in a war effort and their goal was to take over the world, people. And I lived in Indonesia for many years and I heard stories of when the Indonesians came and occupied Singapore and Borneo, an island that I lived on for a couple of years. Uh, it's called Kalimantan now. And uh, just how brutal they were. They had to learn Japanese. And if they caught them speaking Indonesian, the, the Japanese soldiers would whip them with canes. They could not lift their heads up when they were passing Japanese soldiers. If they lifted their heads up, they'd be beaten with canes. So, and that's just, that's none of the atrocities that were perpetrated. Defeating those two countries was a clear and moral imperative as there ever could have been. The Germans unleashed the unique slaughter known as the Holocaust and the Japanese committed a massive number of atrocities against civilians in every country that they occupied. And yet prior to the bombing of Japan, American warplanes dropped hundreds of thousands of leaflets in Japanese warning them that bombs were going to be dropped and giving them time, the civilians that wanted to and believed the pamphlets that were dropped, to flee for safety, much like Israel has been doing with um, uh, Palestine and dealing with, with uh, Gaza and the Gaza Strip. They've dropped leaflets. And it wasn't until the Palestinian, or excuse me, the Israeli army, the IDF, went over and began to protect those corridors of human exile and flowing out from northern uh, Gaza to southern Gaza for safety, it wasn't until the Israeli army went in and protected those routes that the populace was able to escape because Hamas was not allowing that to take place. They were shooting them in the streets as they carried their white flags. People, beware of what you're reading. Do your research. Another form of moral equivalence is being used today when some people, rather than condemning Hamas for their horrific attack on Israeli civilians October 7th, they'll only speak of how we should condemn the cycle of violence. These are the lofty, neutral people. I hate the lofty, neutral. Pick a side. (laughs) You know, they just stand above everybody and say, we just got to condemn the cycle of violence. Yeah, so what does that mean? Can't we just all get along with each other? Can't we all just have a hug? Are you kidding me? And they plead for Israel to cease their war against Hamas. Excuse me? Back to World War II example. There certainly was a cycle of violence in that war, but no one ever used the term because it would have been an immoral description of what was happening. The cycle of violence was not the problem. Japanese and Germany's brutal aggression was the problem. And Hamas's brutal and terroristic aggression against Israeli civilians is what the problem was that started this most recent war. Read about it. And this is the case here. The moral problem is not the cycle of violence, although there is a cycle of violence between the Arabs and 
the Jews, obviously, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But it is Hamas and their brutal and barbaric aggression against civilian population of Israel on October 7th that set everything in motion. Israel did not initiate an unannounced attack against Hamas in Gaza. Hamas did initiate an unheard of act of aggression and terror on Israeli civilians on October 7th. You cannot equalize that just because Israel is now trying to take out the terrorist group Hamas. This is a proven fact, October 7th, and what was perpetrated by Hamas. And without violence from Hamas and Gaza, the West Bank, there would be no cycle of violence presently. They were actually entering into peace talks. Israel was. Now, are Palestinians an ethnic entity? This is important. Some linguists link the word Palestine with the biblical term Philistine or Philistine. And so what the relationship of the modern Palestinians to the, Ameri- uh, to the ancient Philistines, what exactly is it? Is there a relationship between the modern um, Palestinians and the ancient Philistines? Throughout most of biblical history, the Philistines, it is true, were enemies of the Israelites. And this all took place in the land of Cana, the Canaan, the uh, promised land. And for this reason, the prophet Ezekiel declared that they would be destroyed. Now, I hope you have paper and pen because I'm going to start getting into various texts. I'm not going to go to every one, but you need to take down the text and go back and look at it and thank God that we're live feed so that um, you can re-listen to it if you don't get all the references. But in Ezekiel 25, 15, and 16, we read, Thus says the Lord God, Yahweh, Because the Philistines have acted in revenge and have taken vengeance with scorn of soul to destroy with everlasting enmity. That that sounds pretty terroristic. That sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? With scorn of soul to destroy with everlasting enmity. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, even cut off the Cherethites. That's part of the Philistine group, and destroy the remnant of, uh, of the sea coast. Now, in the years surrounding 600 B.C., a little history, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon waged war against the Levant. The Levant is the term that's used to represent Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. Okay, that in olden days it was called the Levant. Part of this campaign involved an attack against Philistia, where the Philistines lived. During this attack, he, Nebuchadnezzar, devastated the Philistine nation in 600 BC. Now, some of their most important cities were utterly destroyed, destroyed, and over the following decades, the Philistines limped on as a nation, but they really had been devastated. By the 5th century BC, it appears that all historical and archaeological trace of them had disappeared. Philistines were no more. They may have survived as a group or a small group for some time after, but Alexander the Great's conquest in the following century certainly eliminated whatever trace of that nation that was left. We're talking 5th century BC here. No more Philistines. No Philistine nation. So, 
Since the Philistines were completely destroyed during the 6th to 4th centuries BC, it is clear that there is no modern nation that comes from them, including the Palestinians. So the Palestinians cannot relate themselves to the Philistines. So where did the Palestinians come from? After the Jewish-Roman wars of the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, now we're talking 1st, 2nd AD, right? The Romans began using the term Syria Palestina, uh, Palestina, and for the entire area formerly covered by Judea and Samaria. And the term for the region remained popular, evolving into the designation Palestine. That's of modern times, all the way up to modern times. And gradually, you had the Crusades. There was a hiccup there, and um, Greg and I were talking about it in Elder's Prayer this morning. He asked me if I went into that, and I said, oh, no. I mean, there's just so much here, right? History. But the term for this region remained popularly evolving into the designation Palestine of modern times. And gradually, the people who lived there started identifying themselves as Palestinians. Now, get this. Both Arabs and Jews both Arabs and Jews. But in conclusion, the modern-day Palestinians did not emerge directly from the ancient Philistines of biblical time. Rather, the term Palestinians describes a population of modern Palestine. And it's a population primarily comprised of Arabs, but there are also Jews included. There are Jews who identify themselves as Palestinians. The Arab population arrived in the area principally during the Islamic conquests of the Levant. Okay? So it's true that Arabs lived in the region in the 19th and 20th century as leftovers from that, that era when they took over the Levant and then the, the Crusaders came in over and tried to regain it and the wars ensued. And they did oppose Jewish presence in Palestine, and there have always been animosity and skirmishes that have taken place there. But Palestinianism, listen to me, Palestinianism and the idea of a Palestinian people and a Palestine or a Palestinian state did not really become popular until Arafat came on the scene. Yasser Arafat of the uh, PLO the Palestinian Liberation Organization, around 1964, okay? Now, there's always been, I mean, even when Israel took over their part of the land in 1948, there was a a section of the land for Arabs as well that they divided up, uh, which is now being proposed, why can't we just do that and have a two-state solution? I want to tell you something. From what I read right now, There will never be a two-state solution, not according to Israel. Why would you have somebody that wants you completely annihilated as your neighbor? And we're talking real close proximity here. Until the state of Israel was established in 1948 and even after, references to Palestinians meant Jews who lived in Palestine, not Arabs. You say, what are you talking about? Well, This is a test, okay? How many have MacArthur Study Bibles here? Okay, I want you to go in the back to the maps. And I want you to look at the map, about three or four maps in, and it's called what? 
Anybody? The Palestine of Jesus' time. The Palestine of Jesus' time. What, is MacArthur an anti-Semite? Is he for the Palestinians? You see, you need to do a little background research. In fact, prior to 1948, the British mandate called for two Palestines, an Israel-Palestine or a Jewish-Palestine and an Arab-Palestine. And Jewish-Palestine was a tiny sliver of land while Arab-Palestine included present-day Jordan. So it was a much bigger chunk. This is history. This, this is like not taking sides. This is just like facts, okay? You can look them up. And before there was an Israeli Philharmonic Orchestra, guess what? There was a Palestine Symphonic Orchestra. What? And in the same way, there, before there was a Jerusalem Post, guess what? There was a Palestine Post. And it wasn't Arabs. It was Jewish. And ironically, Syria objected to referring to the name Palestine because it was too Jewish. Now, how is Hamas related to the Palestinians? Hamas is a political entity that came into power after the PLO. Israel won the Gaza Strip during a six-day war, 1967. They were provoked to it. And they occupied the territory with soldiers and civilians for several decades. In 1993, Israel ceded government control of Gaza to the Palestinian Authority, which is part of the Oslo Peace Accords. In 2005, Israel withdrew its soldiers from Gaza and mandated that all Israeli settlers evacuate the area. Now, the Palestinian Authority called an election, called for an election the following year, 2006, and Hamas, a radical Islamic organization labeled as a terrorist group by many countries, won the majority of seats in parliament. And that's where Hamas comes in, 2006. Now, this is not to say that Hamas won the government position by a majority of vote of the population of Gaza. I'm talking Arabs here now. Not all of the people in Gaza want Hamas. Hence, you see that there are many leaving now. The voting process can't be compared to our American form of elections, but Hamas did win the majority of seats in the parliament, which put them in power, rather than the somewhat more moderate Fatah, or Palestinian Authority, headed by Abbas. Now, Hamas won around 44% of the vote across the reason. That's not 100%, right? In 2006, a total that secured a majority of seats in the legislature under their election rules, which are not like ours. The problem that has existed in Gaza and has been a problem since way before 2006, but certainly after 2006 to present day, is poverty and terrible living conditions for the average citizen in Gaza. They live in squalor, and they're oppressed by Hamas. 
Over the past seven years, nothing has changed for the citizens in Gaza, and things may have even gotten worse than the days of the PLO. It would be wrong to say that citizens of Gaza are overwhelmingly in favor of Hamas, as a recent flood of Gazans escaping to the south is showing. 80,000 were counted Friday, just this last Friday. 80,000 Gazans are fleeing from the north to the south for safety from the fighting. And Israel estimates that more than 850,000 of the 1.1 million people in northern Gaza have left. What's left? Hamas. And that's exactly why they blockaded and did not want the civilians to leave. Because if all the civilians get out, then the idea for Israel is going to go to town and take care of them in what they have vowed to do. Note, this humanitarian exodus has only become possible since Israeli forces have moved into secure, safe exodus routes for those citizens wishing to flee the Lord. There was right, uh, one right down a road right down the middle, the main highway uh, in Gaza, leading from Gaza City to the north or to the south, and they opened up another one right along the coast now. So there's two, and the pauses that you're hearing about are not ceasefires. There are humanitarian pauses that Israel is doing again as an aid to humanitarian purposes to get those citizens out of uh, Gaza City that need to be or want to be uh, free from the fighting. Israel is literally assisting the population of their enemies to evacuate, if they so choose, while Hamas persisted in wanting the population to stay in their homes and support the cause. Surrounding countries like Jordan and Egypt have repeatedly rejected new refugees from Palestine. Why? They're Arabs. Why? Well, one thing is that they're already overrun with refugees from Palestine. Both Jordan and Egypt have thousands of refugees. They have refugee camps, and so they don't want to take any more. So in summary, just let me say, the simple answer to the question who are the Palestinians, they are predominantly Arabs from the surrounding countries like Egypt, Syria, and Jordan that have moved into the region many, many years ago and some more recently, and now we refer to that area as the Gaza Strip. And truthfully, the national identity of Palestine and Palestinians is much more a political and geographical identity than it is an ethnic identity. Okay? It's very important. The only claim that they can go back to is that they're related to the Philistines, and I've answered that. Now, Israel is back in the land. Huh? I already mentioned the modern-day miracle of Israel becoming recognized state in 1948. And contrary to the murkiness of whether the Palestinians are a distinct ethnic entity, there is much background for Israel being just that, and that they have returned to a land that was promised them by God as a distinct national entity and an ethnic entity. Now, let's talk about Father Abraham. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And in it, we see the Abrahamic covenant. And it's comprised of a number of elements which promise extends through the rest of Scripture to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth will be blessed." So we see that there's a number of components to this promise that God made to Abraham, but which promise goes all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament and into the book of Revelation. The first thing is a seed. In Genesis 17, 7, you can look at this if you want. The covenant was with Abraham and his descendants. And his descendants. It wasn't just made to Abraham. And Galatians 3, 16 which is a wonderful verse. You need to turn there, Galatians 3.16. We might not get out of here right on time today, I'm just telling you. But this is so important, folks, and I have not done a lot of teaching in eschatology. Um, I think the last time was when I taught Daniel and Revelation, which was a a two-and-a-half-year process. And so those sermons are online, but I'm thinking there's a need to get back to this a bit because people are very confused. Uh, Galatians 3.16 says something very interesting. It says, Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham. So we're talking about the promise to Abraham of Genesis 12, 1, 2, 3, right? The promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, to his seed, and to, your, and, and to your seed, he's quoting um, Genesis, that is Christ. Now, if ever there was a plug for expository preaching, he just did it right there. He, words matter, not just even sentences, words. And Paul says, listen, he wasn't talking about seeds. He was talking very distinctly about a seed, and that seed would be a blessing, and, and not just to the Jews. At the end of the Abrahamic covenant, it says that blessing will go to all peoples. Secondly, there is talk of a land. Genesis 17, 8 again says that land will be from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. This is known as the promised land, and it centers on the ancient land of Canaan. And you remember then, the story goes from Genesis to Exodus and all the way through the Pentateuch, and then it starts with Joshua, and Joshua goes in to take possession of the land that was promised to Abraham, the land of Canaan. And then there's a nation that's promised in Genesis 12 too. It shows that God promised Abraham he would be a great nation, but the problem was this guy is like old already and Sarah, his wife's old, and they don't have any children. It's like, what are you talking about, God? In 17.4, he renamed Abram, Abraham, meaning father of many nations. And we do know that he promised he would have a son. And repeatedly, after Isaac is born, the son of promise, he is referred to as your son, your only son. Now I'll get into his other son, who God does not recognize as the son of promise, and that's Ishmael in a moment. And then there's 
a blessing. So you've got a seed, a land, a nation, and blessing. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, That's a little call out to us to bless Israel, to pray for their peace. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but I do believe that they are the chosen people of God, yet in unbelief. But we should be praying for them. Abraham did father another child before Isaac. His name was Ishmael. And he was a result of Sarah's attempt to help God keep his promise. (laughs) It was not God's plan. But Sarah knew the promise because as husbands and wives will, they talked and I'm sure Abraham said, hey, I'm going to be the father of a nation. She said, hey, I'm barren. And so she followed the customs of the land, which allowed a barren wife to give their handmaiden or their servant to the, the husband to father a child, and then that would be their child. With Ishmael being the son of a slave woman, and you can see this in Genesis 16, 1 through 16, and Isaac being the promised son who would inherit the blessing of Abraham, according to Genesis 21, 1 through 3, because Abraham passed down the covenant that was given to him to his son Isaac, the son of promise. After Ishmael's mother, a servant of Sarah, mocked Sarah, and when older Ishmael mocked Isaac, they were put out from Abraham's family. They couldn't live together. Sound familiar? This alone would be enough for animosity between Ishmael and Isaac, but even more so, an angel told Hagar Ishmael would be the father of a great nation in Genesis 21, 8, or 18. And interestingly, that Ishmael would be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be great against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility toward his brothers, Genesis 16:12. This is the root of the animosity between Arabs and Jews. He took a wife from Egypt, and that is the beginning of the Arabic peoples. But there are other reasons as well, such as political and geographical disputes. But I'm just talking biblically now. So, let me give you a quick tour of Israel's history. God's promise to Abraham was passed down to Isaac, and then it was passed down to Jacob, and then it was passed... uh, Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when God changed Jacob's name, he, he was into name changes. Names really meant something back then. When God changed Jacob's name, he changed it to Israel in Genesis 32, 28. Remember when, when Jacob wrestled with God and God touched his thigh and God said, because you've prevailed with me, I will change your name to Israel. And toward the end of the book of Genesis, um, you see these 12 tribes of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. They're the 12 tribes of Israel. And towards the end of Genesis, you have the narrative and the story of Joseph. And Joseph was one of those 12 sons, and he was able to rescue Israel from Egypt or from, uh, from famine, and he brought them down into Egypt. Why? because his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. (sighs) Brothers, I'll tell you. And they said, it's not good that we slay him. Let's just sell him. 
like that's a, a solution to the problem. Well, it really was, actually. So he brought them into Egypt, and when they went into Egypt, there were only 70 people, and they remained there for over 400 years in Egypt and became slaves of the Egyptians. And then the great exodus led by Moses, where God delivered Israel from Egypt, and then Joshua led the nation in conquest, and they took the promised land, driving out all the inhabitants and dwelling in the land that God promised to Abraham, the promised land. And then through the era of the kings and through the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, and incidentally, was Israel in captivity, in unbelief, being punished by God, still the chosen people of Israel? Why do we say that? Well, they had a future. They came out of captivity, and they went into their land again, didn't they? But never the way it was. Okay, never the way it was. And right now, they still are the chosen people of God, Israel, but they are heading for a punishment like you've never seen, and nobody's ever seen. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a seven-year tribulation period, after which they will re- be restored and all Israel will once again recognize their Messiah. Through the era of the kings, through the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, the nation continued to thrive. And the birth of Jesus ushered in the first advent, the coming of Israel's Messiah. But she rejected him. And God set aside Israel due to their rejection and began to shower the blessings of his mercy on a people that was not a people, the Gentiles, through the gospel. And the nation of Israel languished in her unbelief, and in A.D. 70, the city of Jerusalem was sacked by Rome, and the great temple was destroyed. And for millennia, the nation was scattered throughout the nations of the world in the great diaspora. No longer dwelling together as one nation, Israel was dispersed to the four corners of the earth. With each new year, a Passover Seder, at Passover Seder tables scattered throughout Gentile domains, Jewish voices were raised to intone the sacred words next year in Jerusalem, people. They remained a people even though they weren't people anymore. They had no land. They were scattered everywhere, but they remained and continued to practice the Seder. And at the Seder each year, they'd say, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. The dream was not an empty fantasy, but a hope rooted firmly in Scripture. So Israel returns to the land. Nothing short of a modern-day miracle for the entire world to witness the rebirth of Israel as a nation took place. At 4.30 p.m. on May 14, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, who was destined to become Israel's first prime minister, rose to his feet in the Tel Aviv Museum Hall and declared, quote, the state of Israel has arisen. And the dreamed of miracle became national reality. And so that year, they were in Jerusalem, weren't they? But Israel's back in the land, a land promised them by God in the Abrahamic covenant. But they are not in the land in faith, believing their Messiah, the Messiah that they rejected when he was with them during his first advent. God identified Israel as his people even when they were in rebellion, such as during the 70-year captivity. And he also promised that he would 
give them a future then. And many of the promises that were given by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel during the days of their captivity overlap and go into the millennial kingdom, which is yet to come, where all the promises of God will be fulfilled completely and literally, I might add. Now, Isaiah 11, 11 and 2 speaks of God gathering Israel and returning them to the land a second time. This is very, very interesting. And here's the thing that you've got to figure out, and, and this is why a lot of confusion comes. You need to understand that God's perspective of Israel is not just like our micro view of things. We think of things all through the gospel because we're Gentiles, most of us. And we think of the gospel and hallelujah, we're saved and we're going to heaven because we believed in Jesus, you know? And we don't give a lot of thought to Jews and Israel and all that stuff. God sees a bigger picture and he sees Israel as a national entity, okay? And there is a spiritual entity within even unbelieving Israel. We're going to hear one play the piano next week, the completed Jews, and incidentally, they got their, their, their feet in both worlds. They're, they're in the body of Jesus Christ, but they're still a Jew, which is really interesting. And I'm looking forward to hearing his testimony. But we don't think of Israel as God thinks of them as a nation, as a nation of people. Now, they do not believe as a nation, nationally, in their Messiah right now. But they will. And that's what we don't understand. That's what we don't think of that it's something coming and (laughs) those blessings on the world we've not seen anything yet if we are being blessed like we're being blessed because of their disobedience quoting Romans now 11 you ain't seen nothing yet when they are fulfilled and all of Israel believes those blessings on all the families of the earth are going to be poured out so Isaiah 11, 11, 12 speaks of God gathering Israel and returning them to the land a second time. Now the first time could have been when he delivered them from Egypt and established a nation in the promised land. Or some understand the first time to be when they returned from the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah 11 says, Then it will happen on that day when the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who remained from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel. Now, lift up a banner of the nations. This is why I think that this isn't talking about their return from uh, Egyptian captivity or even uh, Babylonian captivity because it wasn't a banner to the nations. But is 1948 and Israel returning to the land after almost two millennia of being dispersed? Is that not a banner to the nations? And he will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Well, that isn't just from the land of Babylon. That isn't just from, uh, from Egypt. The four corners of the earth. And the last phrase, from the four corners of the earth, seems to expand it well into all the world. Now over in Jeremiah 16, 14 through 15, he compares the second gathering of Israel in comparison to the great exodus of Egypt, and again speaks of Yahweh restoring them 
to their own land, which he gave to their fathers. All this talk about a land, gosh, it sounds frightfully close to the promise to Abraham that he'd give him a land. And then Jeremiah 23, 7 through 8. Again, the comparison of God bringing Israel out of Egypt in the second regathering um, Israel from the Northland and from all countries where he had driven them. Then they will live on their own soil. Then they will live on their own soil. Now these texts do point to a greater return and repentance of Israel when they finally look upon whom they have pierced and repent as a nation and embrace their Messiah. And that takes place at the second coming. It's true that this does expand to that. But is this possibly, and I would say, yes, it is, a precursor of that day? She's back in the land. She's got to get back in the land. And she's back in the land, but she's not believing yet. And we know from the scriptures that that event, when she believes as a nation and national Israel is no longer hardened partially or blinded, there's no longer a veil over her eyes, she is no longer in unbelief, she finally repents and believes in her Savior, the Messiah, because Zechariah 12.10 and Revelation 1.7. Look at Revelation 1.7, which is merely a quote of Zechariah, prophesying when this day will take place. 1.7, Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, and so it is to be. Amen. And Zechariah speaks of the same thing. That is at the end of the seven-year tribulation when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds with his saints and every eye sees him. And Israel as a nation, after seven years of judgment, Jacob's time of trouble, has taken care of things. They finally recognize him as their Messiah. So, It'll be after that severe judgment, that seven years. And there is a nation of Israel living on her own soil. And it's important to understand that something like this has never occurred in the history of the world, that a people dispersed throughout the world for two millennia return and regather in a land promised to them over 4,000 years ago. Okay? They do have a right to exist as a state, as a nation, because God gave them that right. Now, but the nation of Israel is in unbelief. What do you do with that? Can they possibly be the people of God? Are you still with me? Anybody sleep? Stand up? We got jumping jacks? Okay. I'm sorry. It's a lot of information, and I told you I left, like, lots more on on the floor because I wanted to try to keep it concise. So back to the question in the title of the sermon. Is modern Israel God's people? And a simple, straightforward answer is yes as I said at the beginning. But we need to bring some clarity to that emphatic yes, and much confusion can be avoided if we understand the working of God with Israel can be understood on both a national level and a spiritual level. So on a national level, she is and was not a nation for two millennia, okay? And now she is a nation, okay? Just on a national level, she is a nation. On a spiritual level, she is still on the outskirts with God. 
She's on the outs with God. She is hardened partially now because of her rejection of Messiah. Okay? And if you keep that in mind, it helps you to understand a little bit. Here are some key ideas to keep in mind. Israel, as a nation, is back in the promised land. Number two, they are not in the land in belief. And number three, they are still considered to be the chosen people of God. Now I want to back that up. Why would I say that and how can I be so bold? Some questions can be, how on earth can you say that because they don't believe in Jesus? I agree they don't believe in Jesus. Um, Israel right now, the Israelis, okay, are predominantly secular, uh, agnostic. They're not, uh, not necessarily atheistic and uh, through their wars, there's a lot of them have, have come to saving faith in Christ because they've seen God's hand work on their behalf in ways that have to be miraculous, and they've repented. But for the most part, the, the nation is not believing, and surely as a nation itself, it's not a religious entity. The Abrahamic covenant was an everlasting covenant. Genesis 17.7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now, it says nothing in there about the demarcation of believing in Messiah. It just says, you as a nation, my promise is to you, Abraham, and your descendants, and descendants after their descendants after their descendants, forever and ever and ever, everlasting covenant with you. Okay? Everlasting means without end, just in case you needed that. Secondly, Paul answered the question of whether unbelieving Israel was still the chosen of God, even after they rejected Jesus, their Messiah. Romans 11, 1 through 2 says this. You can turn there. Romans 11, 1 through 2. I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? May it never be. God has not rejected his people. That's twice in one verse. I think it's emphatic. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Israel even in their state of rejecting Messiah, are called his people. That seems quite clear. Now, look at a couple, couple tech, uh, chapters back, Romans 9, verses 3 and 4. Romans 9, 3 and 4 says, For I could wish, this is Paul speaking, who was a Jew, he was an Israelite, for I could wish that I myself were accursed or separated from Christ for, you, uh, for the sake of my brethren, my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So he is not talking about fellow believers. He's talking about Jews in the flesh, okay? Or what we would refer to as national Israel. He says, who are Israelites. They're Israelites. Israelite is a term of the chosen people of God. It means nothing less than that. To whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple, uh, temple service, and the promise. What, what promise? Well, the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. And incidentally, over in chapter 11, where is it, where is it, where is it? 
11.29, it says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay? So contrary to some evangelicals that say, oh, man, Israel, God's done with Israel. She rejected Messiah. The church is Israel. Pardon? You have to explain these verses to me. Explain to me all through chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul, a Jew, talking to Christians, trying to help them to understand and get their arms around what the heck's this entity, Israel, and, and how does that work with us as believers? Now, I, I'm not getting it. And so he tried to explain it. And he says, yeah, they're enemies of the gospel, but that worked to your good. And if you get blessed so much by them being enemies of the gospel, wait till they come in their fulfillment and believe in Messiah. <laughs> and he was reasoning with them. And he says, yes, they're in partial hardness now because of their rejection. But all the talk in Romans 9, 10, and 11 moves on towards a future for uh, national Israel. If there is no future entity of Israel, what is Paul talking about in there? Let me go further. This does not negate the fact that there is a case for inner spiritual element who are the true Israel. Those who are completed Jews are called true Israel. Okay, It's not the church. It's believing Jews that have believed. They're called the remnant throughout these three chapters in Romans. And this includes both Jew and Gentile. We are true Jews. We are the children of Abraham by faith. Okay? So that's not talking about national Israel. There is such a thing as an entity of ethnic Israel. So, now, national Israel is in partial hardness, 11.25. Look at 25, chapter 11, verse 25 of Romans. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. That's a little phrase that Paul uses with, I know you're utterly confused. Let me help you here. I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening, partial means momentary or, you know, it, it, it's temporary. It's not, it's not forever. A partial hardening has happened to Israel when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. That's when the end of the times of the Gentiles come. And that is at Christ's second coming and he begins to reign once again. So, All Israel will be saved. Look at verse 26 of that same verse. It says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove. Now, I just don't understand. If words mean anything, that is a prediction that all Israel, all Israel, the ethnic entity, the national entity, will be saved. And the only place we see that is in Revelation 1-7 and Zechariah 12-10, when they repent and receive Messiah, as they were supposed to do in the first advent, and they didn't. Okay? So, again in Romans 11, 28 and 29, Paul speaks in the present tense, at his time, his present tense, post-ascension, of the national, uh, nationally rejected Messiah 
and says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable means not repented of or without a change of purpose. God's purpose marches on. And so on the national level, Israel as a nation, presently in the land, yet in unbelief, is still the chosen people of God. What that does not mean is this. Them being in the land as a chosen people of God does not mean that Israel as a nation is spiritually saved. (laughs) No way. As a nation, they are yet in unbelief. In fact, Paul says in Romans 11 that they are enemies of the gospel. That's where they're at. That's how hardened they are nationally. Number two, individual Israelis can be spiritually saved. But just because they're Jews does not mean they're saved. They have to believe in Jesus just like you or I have to believe in Jesus. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not your ethnic heritage. Number three, Israel cannot, it it doesn't mean that they're God's chosen people in the land in unbelief. does not mean that they don't do anything wrong. Obviously, they're going to do something wrong. They're unregenerate as a nation. So it doesn't mean that everything that they do has God's stamp of approval because they're God's chosen people. Number four, that as a nation, the individuals of that nation, they do not, um, they don't need the gospel because they're Jews. No, they need the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jews first. Okay? And also to the Greeks or Gentiles. So the gospel remains static, and we should evangelize our Jewish friends, okay? Because they can be saved. Now, five, the Gentiles who do believe the gospel are somehow not God's people because they are not Jewish. See, this is another fallacy that's out there. Well, you're not Jewish, so you can't be part of God's people. Are you kidding me? Romans 9, 24 through 26. Please go there. Romans 9, 24 through 26. Even us, whom he has called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? He talks about us and he throws himself in with Gentiles. But he's really not calling himself a Gentile. He's calling himself part of the body of Christ. Okay? As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, what? My people. Beloved, welcome to the people of God. You are part of the people of God. He says so right here. You who were not a people are now called my people by God. And her who was not beloved is now beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Praise God. Sure I'm glad because I am a Gentile. I'm Roman. You know, my heritage is Roman. Can't get more Gentile than that. So he calls us his people. And I just want to close off with, with this because our time is up. But please just turn to Romans chapter 11. And I want you to look at verse 33. It's so amazing. Context, context, context. Why did Paul write these, this incredible eulogy to God and benediction after chapters 9, 10, and 11. Because I think he got done with that and he just went, whew, that was a load. 
All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's his benediction on everything that he just said in those chapters that are so complex. But they're really not that complex. If you take time to study them and keep your your entities in the right places and don't spiritualize texts. Read it literally. It's written to us in a way that we can understand. It's called the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. But it takes time to study. So with that, I close, and I'm sure I've got thousands of questions, and I'm open for anything. Um, bring it. Oh, I want to say one thing. If you grapple with these things about that there isn't an Israel anymore, and, and that um, the church is Israel, and you're, you're grappling with that stuff, I want to highly recommend to you a book called Continuity and Discontinuity. Continuity and Discontinuity. And uh, it's written by Dr. Uh, John Feinberg, another completed Jew, and its perspectives on the relationship between the Old and New Testaments, really what it is, is it's a perspective on dispensationalism versus covenantalism, okay? And it talks about continuity and discontinuity. Um, Covenant theologians would have a continuity going all the way through, and dispensationalists have a discontinuity. Uh, Israel is not the church. Israel is its own entity, and the church is its own entity, and there is a future for national Israel as well as a future for the church, the body of Jesus Christ. So with that, I'll close before I get off on another tangent here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your work, which is beyond... uh, It's just so unbelievable. Who could ever put anything together like this where you have a people that you have chosen but because of their disobedience and unbelief you set aside and pick up another people who were not a people and you call them my people and then you're going to pick up Israel again during the great tribulation and you're going to chasten them until they finally repent and then everything is going to come together oh God what a glorious plan and it's your plan and we're glad that you've written about it in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.